travel without a bike is to me a, just a missed opportunity. I don't want to go someplace and not be able to ride a bike. That's how I see places. That's how I take them in. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Party in the summer is winding down, and to celebrate, we're going to have a three-part series. That means we're planning ahead here at the podcast. How do you like that? Wow. This <laughs> intro went better than expected. Generally, when somebody says the summer is winding down, I think about school time. I think back to my childhood where they start running the department store ads in early August for going back to school. And you think like, don't rob me of the rest of my summer. Yeah, don't get ahead of yourselves. <laughs> To celebrate, we're going to talk about some of our hobbies, perhaps you could call them obsessions, and the people who've turned them into businesses. Who says you can't turn your passion into a profitable business? This week, we're going to be talking about one of my great new loves, and I inherited it from Ian. Uh-oh. And no, it's not his cat who's getting up there. How old is Moxie? There's a couple of obsessions. I was scared which one you were going to mention there. My cat is 12 years old, never been healthier. I think he's going to be one of those cats that lives to be like 25 or something like that. It's going to be on the news and I'm just going to be stuck with him. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing cycling and not cats with me. Do you remember that first bike ride we went on when we were in Austin? Instead of going to the gym, you asked me out on one of your training rides. I did. Yeah. I broke you. <laughs> we weren't going that fast. And I remember pulling over the side of the road and looking behind me and you were just huffing and puffing on the side of the road. And I came back and you're like, hey man, I just got to take it easy a little bit. That's how I felt the whole time I was in Spain with you. So <laughs> I appreciate you returning that favor. So, you know, I really got inspired by that, you know, and I remembered how much fun it was to ride a bike. I thought, you know, hey, bikes are for kids. You know, it's no, it's not true. Bikes are for everybody. These things are they're freedom machines. And uh, I realized that that day and it was a happy coincidence that I was moving to Barcelona just a few months later, which just so happens to be one of the best places in the world to ride a bicycle. Not kidding on that. It's true. I didn't know that. Very happy coincidence for me. I've gotten into it. I've already ridden 10,000 kilometers plus. So into it isn't a little bit of a understatement. It's become a full-blown obsession. And what some people might not understand about cycling is just the time commitment that it takes to get good at it. You're spending hours and hours on your bike a week. So it's like a part-time job. And almost as much as I like riding my bike, I like reading about other people riding their bikes. And one of my favorite blogs that I've discovered during this current midlife crisis, you could call it, is called Red Kite Prayer, or RKP, which has an associated podcast that you can listen to called The Pace Line. And so it is with great excitement that I got to have a conversation today with the writer of that blog, Patrick Brady. Now, Patrick has an interesting backstory, which we open up the interview talking about, but it's worth saying that he's also a major figure as well in advocacy work for the safety and tolerance of cyclists on the roads. Before all you non-cyclists out there shut off the pod, we do have a much more wide-ranging conversation than just like the health benefits and the fun of riding a bike, which are very real, by the way. In this interview, we talk about Patrick's attitude to generating revenue with the blog, writers he's inspired by, and lots more. So I encourage you to stick with us. But before we get started, I got to preface this episode with there's a little bit of wonky, nerdy lingo in here. So I'm going to define some of these terms. Maybe I can ask you, Ian, to define some of these terms. So first off, Strava. Strava is an app that essentially tracks your cycling performance, and it also allows you to see the routes of other cyclists and follow other cyclists. For example, I'm on Strava right now. I go to see what Dan has been up to, and it looks like the last ride Dan did was 74 and a half miles, and that's very impressive to me. Strava, the app, is like the de facto app for cyclists. It is super popular, and part of the reason is that you can compete with other cyclists on critical segments of the road. So like, if you go out and do a climb, you can compare yourself with not everybody who's done that climb that has the app and all your friends who have the app. 
And this is how crazy it gets because I was riding with you. You have this app because you don't want your phone out on your handlebars. That's just kind of goofy. But you do have your little Garmin cycling computer out on your handlebars that talks to your Strava. And so I, I would keep hearing this like beep, beep. And I'd say like, what is that? Is that like your heart rate? And you say like, no, that just lets me know when the segment is starting. So I know when to hammer. <laughs> because I want to be on the leaderboards. There's just kind of this competitive community effect that's going on on Strava, which is pretty cool. And we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about roadies or road cyclists. No, they're not necessarily people who set up Van Halen sets. And we'll talk about the Peloton, which is essentially a group of roadies riding together. And also an e-bike which is one of the business ideas that Ian wanted to get into a few years ago, which is this growing trend of electronic bikes. They're basically a small power assist while you're pedaling that makes the bike accessible to a broad range of people who might not have the fitness to be able to get a bike up a hill, for example. Or they just want to travel or commute long distances. Absolutely. So we'll talk about all that and more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Patrick as much as I did. So, yeah, I worked in bike shops and rode bikes and got a degree in kind of a bridge major in music and psychology. And one day when my father asked me if I wanted to go to graduate school, I said, yeah, I'm, I might want to, but I think I'd do it in English. And to him, that was the road back to salvation. He just didn't think I was going to be successful as a musician. And he was right. But I ended up going and getting a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. I'm trained as a poet. So I'm different from, you know, the vast majority of my colleagues in that I'm trained as a writer, not as a journalist. And so I come at the job in a different sort of way. You know, if I'm meeting somebody for the first time and explaining, you know, my approach, I tell them what I do is customer retention. My job is to keep people invested in cycling. My job is to keep people loving cycling. When they finish a piece of mine, I want them to close that browser window and think, Hey, man, I am going for a ride tomorrow. <laughs> you know, that's my job. This isn't Time Magazine. I'm not doing investigative journalism. And so that classic view of the coolly detached investigative journalist out getting his story, that's not me. I have bias. And I'm just trying to be really clear about what that bias is. You know, my bias is for cycling. You know, I love it and I write for other people who love it. And there's not really a disservice there. For such a big and established industry, it does seem like in cycling, there's a chance for an independent to get a foothold. It's like there's the guy who's whipping up frame sets in the backyard, like he could be the next big thing in the cycling industry. Whereas you look at beverage companies or other large established industries, you feel like there's less of an opportunity there. Well, the barrier to entry to a beverage company, you know, I mean, unless you get into Safeway and everything else, you don't exist yet, right? right. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, you've got a great point that it is possible to enter the bike industry, you know, working in your garage. The barriers to entry aren't necessarily all that high. I started RKP, you know, in my bedroom. This echoes some of the conversation from one of your previous podcasts. You know, I was, shall we say, collecting some income from a certain government program after having been laid off. You know, that's when I chose to start RKP. I didn't actually launch it until after that had run out, but I did a whole lot of work preparing for it. Who laid you off? I was working for a bike company, Felt. It was the 2008 downturn, you know, when the entire world imploded just about, you know, they had to let some people go. And I was the junior guy in marketing. Three days after finding out my wife was pregnant, I got to drive home and tell her I was unemployed. And then your plan for your pregnant wife was that you were going to start a blog on the internet. <laughs> She must have been thrilled. <laughs> yeah, I didn't fully have that plan just yet. And so there was a whole lot of scratching of our heads and, you know, realizing that uh, I was going to need to do a lot of freelance work. It was a scary little while. But by the time that our son was born, you know, there was a fair amount of income coming in from freelance work. So got through it. <laughs> I have a bunch of questions about RKP and your writing style and career and stuff, but I thought it might be fun to start with just talking about cycling itself because I'm kind of a, a new cyclist and so I'm curious and have so many questions. So my first question is, you wrote that too often people inside and outside of the bike industry make the mistake of believing that the foundation of roadie lifestyle is racing. 
While it's not, racing can be fun, but week in and week out, incredible group rides take place all across Americas. Roadies spend the majority of their bike time on group rides. So what is this phenomenon that's happening all across America? Well, we're human beings, which is to say we're social beasts. You know, we live in societies. You know, you look at what the life of a human being was, you know, 2,000 years ago. They were a little less evolved, but we still grouped together for the common good. You know, you got more done that way by working with other people, division of labor and all that. And a group ride, the Peloton, is a microcosm of that. You know, there's shared labor. There's camaraderie. There's a certain safety in numbers. Cyclists get run over by cars every day. You don't hear about cars plowing into group rides all that often. So doing a group ride with other people means you're in a setting where you're more likely to be seen. And so it could be that, you know, even beyond, you know, just what you get in terms of socializing with other like-minded people, one of the greatest things about a group ride these days may be the fact that you're much less likely to get hit. It makes me think like this social element to it. I've read a lot that cycling is the new golf. (laughs) How do you interpret that statement or theory? It's a really convenient little turn of phrase. But dude, I've been hearing that turn of phrase for 15 years. From that standpoint, I mean, yeah, there's a certain truth to it in that, you know, there is becoming a generational shift in terms of, you know, when we're going to socialize with business contacts and other people that we like you know, away from work or, you know, professional situations, you know, more and more people are choosing to go out on a bike ride instead of playing golf. And part of that is, yeah, we want to get some exercise, but golf, it's not a bad activity. It's certainly interesting, but cycling, I'd like to argue, is a whole lot more interesting, a whole lot more fun. And it's going to do more to contribute to your well-being over a long life. I want to create a space for this argument. So let's talk about it. Because there are sports like bowling or activities like bowling that I detest. (laughs) And things that I love, like basketball. The reason I turned to cycling was that I couldn't be the basketball player I once was anymore. So I'm curious, what sticks out for you in cycling when you think about comparing it to other activities you could spend your time doing? Well, you know, sooner or later, everybody's an ex-runner. You know, this speaks to your, what I suspect is, you know, your trouble with basketball is that, you know, there comes a point in life where your body just doesn't really take all that beating all that well. You know, you get up the next day and you're sore and your joints hurt. And it's possible to be a cyclist very, very late in life. My grandfather was in his 80s and still riding a little newspaper boy cruiser four miles a day. If he felt good in the afternoon, he'd go out and do it a second time. That was at 83 years old. You know, cycling is something that I hope will be a part of my life until, you know, I reach that final stage where I know, okay, you know, we only have a couple minutes left on the clock. This is it. One of the things you said that has been haunting me the past few weeks is that you said in like a very matter of fact tone, you were talking about your advocacy work and you said, we've all lost friends to cycling. And I thought, well, no, I haven't yet. Is it possible that you could share a story about that or say something along those lines? There was a post that I put up just Saturday called Consequences. It talked about, you know, an incident in which a kid leaned out of a van and hit me on the back with a flip-flop saying, bam, bam, each time he hit me. And I memorized the license plate number and, you know, fought with the cops for a while, but eventually, you know, got a conviction for the driver and the kid. They were both misdemeanors, but, you know, I chased that until I got, you know, law enforcement backup to say, no, you can't go around doing that. And part of the case that I made to the investigator who clearly did not want to chase this was that just months before a friend of mine had been run over in Pacific Palisades, a particularly affluent and beautiful part of the greater LA area. She'd been run over by a Range Rover, a woman reaching for her cell phone, thump, thump, Deborah's gone. And the ripples and shockwaves that that sent through our local community, there was a vigil for her that hundreds of cyclists attended and the LA Times covered, you know, to give you some sort of idea of, you know, just the shock and devastation that that put through our tiny little community. And, you know, that's something that happens, you know, many times a day around the country. A good friend of mine is the executive director for Mass Bike. And every time another cyclist in Massachusetts is killed by a driver, There's a tweet from him alerting us to it. I see those tweets entirely too often, several times a week. And it's just shocking to see it there in black and white. One of the things 
that you all made apparent on your show and in your writing is that there is this undertone in the law enforcement community and amongst the driving community that almost like cyclists have it common for them. Is that the right sentiment? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. I mean, I'd want to be careful to say not everybody thinks this way, but there are a lot of people who have this fatalistic view of cycling that essentially, you know, you're playing basketball in the middle of the interstate. What did you think was going to happen? And, you know, it belies a misunderstanding of the situation, which is that, you know, we're traveling the streets. We are legally allowed to be on the street. We're not supposed to be anywhere else either. You know, we're not supposed to be riding through somebody's backyard, you know, if we don't know them. This is where we're supposed to be. And, you know, as long as we're following the law, you know, there's not a problem with that. And if someone is having trouble passing us because the road is narrow, the law says, wait, you know, it's not that big a deal. And so education is something that, you know, is really a big problem in terms of cycling advocacy going forward, making people understand that not only are we allowed to be out there, we actually have greater right than they do. You know, drivers have driver's licenses that can be revoked. You know, this is a privilege you earn. I think uh, large scale, you know, education of the driving public is badly needed. I've been intimidated by drivers. It's pretty scary to have someone pull over a giant truck and start yelling at you just because you're on your bike. Does this attitude change across the country? Or is it pretty consistent in America that you're going to have to put up with some hostility if you want to be a cyclist? Certainly. So I used to live in Los Angeles and relatively recently moved to Sonoma County. And you know, it has actually taken some getting used to because people are so chill. I had an incident very shortly after I moved here where I heard a car slowing down and slowing down further. And I was like, oh man, here it comes, you know, the beer bottle. And then I got around this bend and you could actually see a couple hundred meters up the road. And that's when the car pulled entirely into the other lane, gradually accelerated, went around me, pulled back into the other lane, went on his merry way, didn't spit any gravel, <laughs> didn't throw anything at me. And, you know, it was one of those, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore moments. I just, I love that. So, you know, it's not fair to say that every place is the same, but, you know, you go any place and if there are enough people, there are going to be a few pinheads. It's one of those things. The bigger a population is, the more you have to be prepared to accept it. The more people who ride, the more acceptable it's going to be. That's one of the conversations I've been having with people around e-bikes. I'm a big fan of e-bikes, and some people are kind of hostile to it and think it's not real cycling, it's cheating, it's whatever else. And it's like, dude, anything that gets more people out on bikes in the world, the better. E-bikes are remarkable in that they simply multiply your effort. And as a means to get people out there and get them to exercise some while keeping it instantly enjoyable, I think is a pretty genius way to get more people moving by bike, whether it's errand running or actually doing some exercise when they haven't been able to exercise. You know, we've got a number of people in this country who are morbidly obese. And so finding a way to help them exercise, you know, when obviously walking is going to be difficult, a bicycle is a pretty great way to find an alternative to help these people out. Have you ever read this book called It's All About the Bike? I might be quoting it wrong, but there's a story in there that it was like a brief history of the bike. And he talked about how they were like the iPhone of their day. It was like overnight, it went from no bikes to millions of bikes around the world in a 10-year period. And there was significant political changes that happened. Like people in villages in Britain moved villages over because all of a sudden you had a working class that could move around village to village in a affordable manner. Yeah. I mean, the bike was a societal change when it was introduced. There's no doubt. Is there any promise left in bikes there? Oh, yeah, I really think so. And I think e-bikes could be a piece of that. I'd like to think, you know, 99.99% of everyone in America has ridden a bike. And, you know, thinking back on that time, you know, whether they were nine years old or 29 years old, they're hopefully going to think of it fondly. You know, riding a bike is a thing of pleasure. You know, you can run errands with it, but being on a bike is just a good time. And there are some really hard reasons in terms of neuroscience for why it's so enjoyable. I mean, a flow state is kind of the way to sum it up. It's not terribly hard to enter a flow state while riding a bicycle. And in flow, your brain releases dopamine, 
It releases endorphins, you know, runner's high. It also releases norepinephrine, which is a cousin to adrenaline. It's basically speed. When you have that experience where time slows down and you think, this is incredible. You know, I can see everything. The entire world goes slightly more technicolor. Your body also releases anandamide. That's a cousin to THC. You know, they plug into the same receptor. We know what THC comes from, at least if you've lived in a dorm, you probably have. And then there's finally serotonin, you know, which is the basis of all the antidepressants out there. And so you've got these different things that your body releases when you're in flow. And as one neuroscientist put it to me, you know, if we could package the perfect antidepressant, it would have all the things that are present in a flow state because it makes you happy. Bicycling is a quick shortcut to flow. And so having a bike ride is a great way to brighten your day. And who cares if you've got a little electric motor assisting you, you know, giving you a little hand of God push to get you up to speed and and help keep you there. It's funny you mentioned the flow state bit and this like automatic have a good day engine. For some reason, I was so shut down to that possibility. I remember as a kid, I would get on my bike and point it in a direction and just go on an immediate adventure. Like I would ride as far as I thought was feasible until I could get some snacks at a gas station and ride back. I would see towns that I didn't live in and didn't know anything about. And I remember when I got older, I just thought, well, that's because I was a kid. Like I conflated the bike with being a kid. And I realized that you can get all the same feelings as an adult, that feeling of adventure, that beautiful aspect ratio of like when you're driving, it's too fast. When you're walking, it's too slow. And when you're riding, it's just right. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, I like everybody else, I rode a bike as a kid and then I got a driver's license and wanted to get dates. And so, you know, a bicycle is pretty much anathema to that, at least our society in the 1980s. Nowadays, you know, millennials are going on dates on bikes and I sort of envy that. You know, there came a point in my twenties where I went for a ride one day on a bike after not having been on one for I don't know, six years or something. And I thought, good grief, why did I ever stop doing this? This is fantastic, you know, and that's all I needed. You know, I got a bike after that. It wasn't the next day, but I got one, you know, and I've been at it ever since. There's a rumor that cycling is an expensive sport. A lot of people that don't ride bikes think this. Do you think this is true? It's all relative. You want to talk expensive sports, get into planes. (laughs) But you know, if you make $35,000 a year, dropping 10 grand on a bike is unrealistic. So, you know, relatively speaking, yeah, for some people, it's going to be an expensive sport. But in the grand scheme, you know, the fact that we can replace our tires for less than a hundred bucks, it's not that bad a way to go. You buy a good bike and it'll last you more than 10 years if you're judicious about its care. You know, let's be clear here. What you can get for $1,000 now in terms of a bike versus what you could get, you know, 20 years ago when I first started really reviewing bikes, you can get a much better bike today for $1,000. And, you know, if you're willing to spend two or three, you can get something pretty impressive. Your dollar goes a long way. But, you know, it's one of those things that when someone says, hey, it's expensive, you know, in their life, it is. I always want to be respectful of that. But yeah, I mean, I look at some sports and it's like, oh my God, that would eat me alive. Speaking of expensive, last week I spent 15 hours on my bike. How do you carve out time? What's your philosophy on this when you've got pressures of family, work, friends, and then this hobby comes into your life and is all of a sudden asking you to go on six hour cycling adventures? (laughs) Well, I mean, it does help that it's my job. That certainly helps to make space for that time. But it's harder now for me than it used to be because I do have two kids and, you know, and a wife who I'd like to continue to be my wife. Living in Southern California for a number of years, it was my habit to get up early in the morning and join a group ride. And so I was on the bike you know, certainly by 630 in the morning, most days of the week. And I got up and I got it knocked out and I got home and I felt great and I was ready to jump into my day. Since my move, you know, things don't work quite like that up here. There aren't the group rides to jump in on. Also, it's often very cold in the morning and I figure, well, if I just wait two hours, it'll be 10 degrees warmer. You know, let's do that. But I also joke that when I first met my wife, I told her on the front end, you know, look, this is my life. This is who I am. You know, Saturday mornings aren't going to be sleeping in, getting pancakes, reading the paper, you know, putting on slippers at 11 o'clock in the morning. You just described the serious cyclist. There is this subculture that 
people might be surprised to find out when they get involved. A lot of people sort of drop out from normal life in order to ride bikes. There's other things like that, like surfing and like being a hippie and stuff like that. I think because it's such a freedom machine, a lot of people make that bargain and say, well, like I'll focus on this because I'm getting freedom and enjoyment from this more effectively than I could from like a career or all these other things that people do with their life. They do that. The other thing is the weight obsession that exists in the cycling community. What are some things that like some secrets about the serious cyclists that you think the average person might not know? To pivot ever so slightly on that, I mean, you mentioned surfers, you know, so you've got the soul surfer, the dirtbag climber, the itinerant bike racer. In those people, you know, I see a parallel. They're all people who I think fundamentally are chasing flow. That's where they're deriving their life's satisfaction. They haven't found a job that gives them the satisfaction that they get out in the world that way. And then you end up with people who are going to Red Bull and getting broken in half. That's maybe, you know, an extreme expression of that. But it's interesting in that, you know, cycling can be a way for people to chase an absolute happiness, you know, one that's not defined by any sort of outside fulfillment. You know, you don't need validation from anyone else or anything else. I'd rather be a little more measured in that. But I think there's a lot of value to be drawn that way. A lot of our listeners travel every few months or maybe even more frequently than that. What's been your experience loading up your bike in a plane and and taking it with you when you go places? Prior to 9-11, it was really pretty easy and it wasn't terribly expensive. It happens that 9-11 coincided with a big downturn in the airline industry that they don't like to talk about. But the fact is that, you know, we were facing rising airfares and rising freight charges and that sort of thing, just as things in airline travel got really, really interesting. It's harder now to travel with a bike than it used to be, but I've got a bike that uses what are called S&S couplers. They are these devices that actually allow the frame to be broken into two pieces. I can get a whole bicycle in a case that's about eight inches wide and 29 inches tall, you know, and square. Every time I get on a plane, I've got that bike with me unless I'm going to some sort of industry event where I know a bike is already waiting for me. Travel without a bike is, to me, just a missed opportunity. I don't want to go someplace and not be able to ride a bike. That's how I see places. That's how I take them in. I got to go to Southeast Asia, Taiwan, last year for the first time. And I went over three days early, found a cheap little hotel right in the middle of Taichung that I could afford and went over three days early and just spent days riding around and exploring and eating stuff that to this day, I'm not really sure what it was. (laughs) Some of it delicious. There was one drink there that I have no idea what it was and I don't want to have it again, but it got me through lunch. I guess assumed that, you know, bringing a bike with you is a huge inconvenience because I'm trying to pack light and everything, but it's also a huge inconvenience not to have a bike when you're somewhere. You're walking, you're taking subways, you can't go to the countryside, whereas with a bike, you can do all those things. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I don't want to make a, a sales pitch for bikes with SNS couplers because you're usually talking about a custom frame and, you know, an additional investment in terms of the couplers and the case and whatnot. But having a travel bike as opposed to having a, you know, a big case for your normal bike, but having a travel bike is a pretty genius thing. And anybody who travels a lot and thinks of themselves as a cyclist, I think it's an investment that's really worth it. I couldn't get along without having a travel bike anymore. I have to mention that here in Barcelona, every other bike that you see is like a Brompton or Brompton style folding bike. Are you familiar with these? Oh yeah. They're genius in terms of just simple getting around because you can get to some place, fold it up, and it takes up a fraction of the space of a normal bike, you know? And Europeans don't tend to have 3,000 square foot palaces. You know, as a guy who currently lives in an apartment, I have to be careful here and say, you know, I'm busting at the seams with all the stuff that we have in our place, but I don't need a big mansion. I'd have trouble living in some of the places that I've seen, you know, in Europe though. Speaking of Europe, I wrote recently that Girona, Spain is sort of like a mecca, if not the mecca, for English-speaking pro cyclists in Europe. What are those locations in America? Where do people gravitate in the cycling scene? Well, you know, part of it depends on, you know, if you're a road rider or a mountain biker. 
because if you're a mountain biker and you haven't gone to Santa Cruz or Moab, Crested Butte, Kingdom Trails in Vermont, if you haven't gone to those places, you haven't really lived yet. And as a roadie in the U.S., yeah, there are some places that I don't know that they're as universally viewed here in the U.S. as they are in Europe. I mean, if you're a cyclist, no matter where in the world you live, if you haven't done Alpe d'Huez yet, you're not there yet. Riding in the Alps and, you know, doing a climb that takes you all morning. That's a certain rite of passage. Here in the U.S., places that I think of are, you know, that are kind of must-dos at some point, you know, Malibu. It doesn't get the credit that it deserves. But I tell people, you know, descending the canyon roads in Malibu, that's the most difficult descending that I've done anywhere in the world. More difficult than the Alps, more difficult than the Pyrenees. If you can descend well in Malibu, you can ride anywhere. When I finally understood what this Pokemon Go revolution was. <laughs> I said, hey, we have that. <laughs> it's called Strava. I'm curious, has Strava changed the way you ride? No, it hasn't changed how I ride. You know, it has made me aware of certain things that I was curious about, and it's been a handy tool in some ways. You know, I liken it to a hammer. You can build a house with a hammer. You can make a chair with a hammer. Or, you know, if you're inclined, you can also beat your neighbor to death with a hammer. <laughs> you know, it's what's in your heart. And Strava is a similar sort of tool. If you want to go out and be, you know, the sort of guy who's constantly bagging Strava segments and, you know, terrorizing people on a bike path because you, you need to get the PR, you can be that guy. But if all you're interested in doing is kind of tracking your own riding and, you know, looking at what sort of progress you are making relative to you, it's the best tool ever for that. And so I have a, a really strong ambivalence for Strava. Have you seen anything specifically negative happen in your group or community? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, there was a group ride that I used to do that it helped to just turn inside out in terms of, you know, the moment they rolled out from the parking lot, they had to just be full guns. And it was like, oh, okay, I guess we don't warm up anymore. It was one of several reasons why I stopped doing that particular ride. It just stopped being fun for me. I missed that camaraderie of rolling out and having, I don't know, four miles or whatever it is, six miles of rolling along with friends and chatting and seeing what they're up to, just having a chance to chat with folks. So you wrote for a Dirt Rag magazine back in the day. My business partner, he used to work in bike shops as well. And first off, he wanted your comment on bike shop culture because he's like, those guys are a bunch of debauched individuals. That's his view. <laughs> and he himself is debauched, so he would admit to that. But he wants to hear your view on this. But he said that when you go to the newsstand or the bike shop, that Dirt Rag was the most legit magazine. And he was curious, like, it was like for the real mountain bikers. And so what's different about mountain bikers and roadies in your view? There's something about mountain biking that's so much more individualistic and so much more chasing the good time than being about beating your competition. One of the reasons I've focused on doing a bunch of gravel events and some mountain bike races this year, I haven't done a single criterium or proper road race this year, at least not in the traditional sense. And the reason is, you know, when I'm out there, what I'm interested in is going as deep within myself as I can. And road race culture allows for that, but it isn't predicated on that. You know, I wouldn't want to say you can't do it. It's there. But so much more of road racing is about racing the other guy, beating the other guy. Whereas, you know, so much of mountain biking is all about that individual experience. And so I think at a certain level, there is some difference in appeal. It's not stark or anything. But if you don't know a mountain biker who gets stoned, you haven't really met many mountain bikers, you know? <laughs> I don't know many roadies, or at least I didn't in Southern California, who got stoned. There is some divide in culture. But I mean, I know so many cyclists who do both, but they do both because both those different experiences appeal to them. When I go to your website, 
you know, the store is down. Sometimes it's hard to find content related to like certain reviews. Like if I wanted to see if I should buy this bike or whatever, like the big players in the industry, like they're selling things, they got ads everywhere. You know, you can always find the review and click through to buy the bike or whatever. From a business perspective, how are you thinking about the site? Advertising sales has always been the big driver for us. It's been challenging. The industry is down right now. And so getting ad dollars is difficult. I took the store down. There were some shipping issues and also something in some software code that had gone south. And so I wasn't getting proper notifications about new orders placed. And so I said, okay, I'm going to just back burner that for a little while, while I get on top of some other stuff. And so actually this fall, the store should be back up and running just like it was in the past. But as they say, monetizing a site, it's difficult. I've wanted to stick with a traditional model of how we do things, but more and more I'm entertaining the thought of going to a voluntary subscription-based, you know, sort of NPR style, call it investors, call it, you know, pledge drive, whatever, but going to more reader support. I've done some of that in the past. Last year, we had the freelance fund and people could pledge in $5 increments. And as a result, I got to run some pretty cool stories, but we're a small operation. And so I'm always bumping up against the issue of wanting to hire more contributors, wanting to commission more work and struggling to have the ad sales to be able to cover it all. Is Red Kite Prairie your full-time income now? It's not my only income. It's the biggest single chunk, but I do other freelancing. There was a great piece actually on Flow States for bicycling in their May issue. You know, I get things here and there. Just did a piece on Jeff Archer, a friend who was killed by a drunk driver for Dirt Rag. The first piece I did for Dirt Rag in like 24 years or something. I hadn't done anything for them since 1991. When I look at the site, it seems like there's definitely a lot of opportunities. I'm surprised that you're not more aggressive about it. It's funny. I was almost, I'll say, hoping that the conversation would turn in this direction because since learning about you guys, I mean, I don't really want to go and live abroad unless I were just to move the entire family for a couple of years to, you know, Nice or something. Digital nomad, that doesn't work for me. I've got a family, you know, I like having roots someplace, but there's so much about how you guys think about business and how to build a business. Yeah, sure. Our store's down and that's a missed opportunity. Uh, Relative to what our income, our revenue has been historically, the store was never a huge thing for us. And so it's not a big missing piece. When you sell these ads that are on the side of your site, are you selling that through your relationship with these companies or are you selling based on the number of visitors coming to your site? D, all of the above. There has to be a relationship to be able to get in the door to talk advertising, but everybody wants metrics. And that's a real rabbit hole in that, you know, you've got to decide how much information you're going to give about your metrics, because some people will just metric you to death. You know, well, what's this? What's your dwell time? What's this? What's that? And it's at a certain point, it's like, look, either you believe in what we do or you don't. If you don't believe in us, if we're not reaching the sort of people you want to reach, that's fine. Here are our numbers. And so I try to keep it pretty high level. It's a very affluent readership. It's very educated. They're very loyal. And there's a lot of dwell time. You know, once they come to the site, they're on the site quite a while. And some people want that. Who's a great writer? I'm curious, when you go out there, do you look up to people in terms of writing? Just yesterday, I posted a piece that a friend of mine who works for Goo Energy wrote about a misadventure in the Toyabi range of mountains in Nevada. And this is a trip that went so spectacularly wrong I can scarcely fathom what they went through. It's as misadventure as misadventure could happen and still be in the United States. Just a truly fantastic piece, a great postmodern narrative. He starts with the end of the story. Once the danger has passed, most people start where the danger is. And this is a story that ran in a small regional publication that has since gone away And I just adored the story. And I was like, you know, not that many people ever saw it. You know, why don't you send me the Microsoft Word file so that I can reprint this thing? And as it turns out, the photographer who was on the trip lives here in town as well. And I went and asked him, hey, can I reprint some of those images that you sent? And he was like, yeah. And so 
I got a chance to reprint the story. And that's something that, yeah, I really admire it because what he did in terms of that narrative bouncing back and forth through time on it and it, how well it worked when he did that, just loved it. In terms of kind of my professional inspirations, people I look to for inspiration and, dare I say, influence, Dan Neal of the Wall Street Journal, Pulitzer Prize winner, car reviewer. I absolutely adore his work. He can review anything and I'll read it. What's interesting about his writing? Because that sounds so boring. Wall Street Journal, cars, reviews, no thanks. He was at the LA Times for a long time, and that's where he wrote a review of the Mini Cooper S that won him the Pulitzer. And you can't get through the interview without laughing. It's hilarious in spots, but it's also like a serious car geeks review, but he gets in, gets the job and gets out in about a thousand words. And so it's one of those things that I keep looking at going, God, I would love to learn how I can do all the things that I need to do in a bike review and get out in a thousand words. Just haven't figured out a way to do all that I need to do. His ability to bring in pop culture, history, his ability to bring in the larger world in talking about cars is what really impresses me and certainly inspires me. Recently, I it was part of my first race. The day after, I like bolted out of bed and ran to the cafe and like I just wrote every detail. Like I was obsessed with those four hours. Like everything mattered to me. How much I drank when like was super interesting to me. So I wrote everything down. I recently worked it into something that I published on my blog. That's like the writing gods just completely raining down on me. That never happens for me. So it felt really odd and good. But I'm curious, like when I look at your archives, it's just years after years of a real steady, high quality output. How does it work for you? You know, I'm probably not terribly different from any other guest you ever have on the podcast in that, you know, I believe that when you get up in the morning, you've got to love what it is you're doing. And I love the process of writing. And one of the things that I quickly learned, you know, in moving to the digital space from print was that you've got to have regular output. Otherwise, you know, the eyes will wander. People will just go elsewhere. People want to consume. You know, when I get up in the morning, if I don't already have something that was just scheduled to go up the previous day, I've got to get to work. And so I try to keep it so that when I get up in the morning, I'm working on the next day's post. But at the same time, I'm also working on other posts that take a longer period of time to write. Anytime I do a bike review, it can take me three or four days to write that review as I work that time in around other posts that I'm working on. But, you know, yeah, fundamentally, I love to write. And, you know, it's one of those things that not everyone really loves that process. Sometimes, you know, like you just described, somebody will get inspired and they'll have a great experience with it, but it's not really the thing they want to do every day. I think that's the only difference between someone who's got the talent for it and someone who makes it their profession. We all communicate, you know, we write emails, we talk to people. Communication's a very daily part of our lives. Not everybody wants to play with verbs all day long. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Thanks for finding our show, folks. Uh, again, you can always find us on iTunes and Stitcher. And go- you know where I found us this week, guys? On Podbean, whatever that is. Podbean. The Pace Line. Oh, they is have on- the best beans. They do have the greatest beans, pinto or black, <laughs> and they have the Pace Line podcast. And so, why did you want to play with radio? What inspired you guys? You should probably ask the other two hosts of the show. Oh, man. You know, part of it was just having friends come to me and say, you know, you'd be really good. And this went on for at least two years of people saying, you ought to do that. You should totally do a podcast. And me saying, I'm sorry, I love you, but I think you're out of your mind. I didn't think I was going to be any good at it. And I still have reservations about my performances. And I should probably not admit that right here, but I'm okay with honesty. There was a part in a recent episode. Well, first off, the cast of characters works nicely because you've got like the radio guy who keeps everybody on track. And we'd be lost without Michael. We would be screwed without him. <laughs> so Michael's like the grown up. <laughs> and then you've got Fatty, who's like the lovable guy that you want to hang out with and go on a bike ride with. He comes across as the enthusiast. And then you've got you. You have the takes on the industry. Like 
the guy who's going to come in and like deliver the goods in terms of the knowledge. Like you did this review of a felt bike and you talked solo for like five minutes and it was perfectly engaging the whole time, which I thought was really, really great stuff. Did you write that out beforehand or did you just go off the cuff? No, that was completely extemporaneous. I'd already written the review, so I knew the talking points, but Michael just pitched it to me and I took over. Thank you for that because honestly, once that was finished, I was scared. I wasn't sure how that was going to go. Have you put something up on your blog recently within the last few years that you wrote and then when you posted it, you were like, you had a sense of anxiety that people might say horrible things to you or that it might get you in trouble? (laughs) Which month? Because you have put up really strong opinions in the past, particularly about dopers, Lance, Armstrong. You write with an incredible amount of passion when it comes to advocacy. I guess the fairest answer is not early enough. (laughs) All the stuff that ends up being controversial, well, it went up. And then I get, once it starts really encountering resistance, that's when I get a little anxious. You know, you can't be a professional writer and not develop a thick skin. Life is not going to work for you if you don't figure out how to develop a thick skin and let people say what they want to say. But it's one of those things that there's no point in being a writer if you're not going to develop an audience that's what you want. You want people to be reading the work. And I don't really want an adversarial relationship with my audience. You know, I want to engage people and connect with them. And so anytime I write something that finds an incredible amount of resistance, I wrote a piece this past spring about Eroica and kind of taking them to task for their rules about the period bikes. What is Heroica? Eroica is, it began in Italy and it's this event where you ride you know, as many dirt roads as possible, linking it up with asphalt here and there. And you're supposed to be on period bikes. And by period, they mean, you know, anything produced prior to 1984. It's old shifters, you know, old steel frames, brake levers with the cables coming out of the top of the lever, no carbon fiber. You're using toe clips, no clipless pedals. And those bikes are not as comfortable to ride. And it forces anyone who wants to do the event to find a way to get one of these old bikes. And I made clear my objection to that idea in that this really causes a lot of people to look at buying a bike that they wouldn't otherwise invest in just to do this event. And so I posed an objection to that. And people who were fans of that event came in to criticize me, you know, and so I caught a lot of flack for it. I didn't change my mind, you know, (laughs) but it's one of those things like I went and slaughtered a sacred cow, you know, it's like, oh, want some steak? You know, I love talking with Patrick. I hope that came across in the episode. And also after this conclusion and the outro music for the real cycling nerds out there or the people that are fascinated by cycling, interested in it, I asked Patrick a lot more questions about cycling itself after the music. But regarding creating a business out of your passion, one of the things that sticks out to me about Red Kite Prayer is that this blog is not like any other cycling blog out there. I mean, he does have other authors in there and collaborators and stuff, but it's his thing. You can feel that he's brought his own unique attitude to it and he's doing it his own way. And that to me, as an entrepreneur, is what's energizing and refreshing about this is if you want to start a cycling website, it does look like on the internet, like there's one way to do that and everybody's doing it. And then there's Patrick doing it his own way and making it work. And that's what I love about Red Kite Prayer. So if you'd like to check out the show notes for this episode, we'll be posting it at tropicalmba.com slash cycling. Now, boss, man, this is your podcast and you have requested a soapbox. Oh, I don't know how important this is. <laughs> I do want to just say this. So it was an amazing experience riding with you over in Europe on public roads, just in terms of how polite motorists were there. And I think I attribute it to everybody's got a cousin or a brother or an uncle or somebody they know that cycles. And so everyone's kind of aware of this hobby. Everybody respects that the road is for cycling, motorcycles and cars. And to come back to Austin, which I think is a fairly friendly bike town, and to just experience the difference, the way that cyclists are treated in America, I think it's sad. It really is sad to see And there's a lack of, I think, mutual disrespect from both sides, the cyclists and the motorists, and the way that they behave and interact with each other. Besides this being a rant, Dan, I would say if you are looking to go on a cycling vacation, I would think that there's no better place than to be in Europe. 
Yeah. And if you're looking for feedback on that, post it in the comment section of this blog, tropicalmba.com slash cycling. Europe is really the heart of the sport. You know, this is where it's all going on, particularly in France, Italy, and Spain. It's amazing. It's really stunning being out there on the roads and being respected like you belong. And the amazing hills and mountains you have here to be able to go up some for hours at a time. But you get to go down too. Yeah, the down part is always less than the up part though. That's what makes it hard work. Again, stick around to the end after the closing segment if you want to hear more about cycling. And we are going to be back next week with one of Ian's obsessions. Why don't you give a teaser for what's coming up next week? Well, it's going to be an exciting week for me. We are going to have the guy behind the guy behind the guy, Mr. Regular from Regular Car Reviews. Mr. Regular? Is this some kind of diet thing or what's going on? Regular car reviews, if you haven't heard of them yet, they are a YouTube phenomenon. They drive regular cars around and make ridiculous comments about the way that they operate and their position in American culture for the most part. It's friggin' hilarious. So we will link to some of their videos on this post if you want to get a preview of the business we're going to be highlighting next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, so I have one more quick little section. I don't do this very often, but I really want to know the answers to these questions, so I'm going to ask you. (laughs) Okay. Some are just sort of jokes. I'll start with the first one, which is yes or no, are unicycle enthusiasts cyclists? No. Tour de France winner in 2018, discs or no discs? Ooh, discs. By the way, you're the only sane person on the internet when it comes to disc brakes. What is it about disc brakes <laughs> that one of my hobbies at night with a glass of wine is just to read about disc brakes and just to marvel at the emotions? I don't get it. What's going on? These things that people say like they're not necessary. Why do people say that? I don't understand what that means. At a certain level, there's an implicit insult to the bike you own by saying you need discs. Okay. It's saying your bike isn't good enough. And you know, while that hasn't been explicit, you know, that message is in there. And people don't like being told that, you know, this object they love so much is insufficient. But, you know, when you strip that away, if you get on a bike with disc brakes and just go out for a ride, no one ever comes back and goes, that was crap. (laughs) You know, it's also worth observing that you consider most of the U.S. is pretty flat. Most of the U.S. is not a good argument for disc brakes. You know, disc brakes become kind of the de facto answer to control once you're in a really hilly or mountainous place. You know, if I was still riding in Malibu on the weekends, I suppose there's a chance that all of my bikes would have disc brakes by now. They do just work better. What is the ideal tire size and pressure for a road bike? Wow. The ideal tire size for a road bike. I'm going to go with 28 millimeters. And pressure, what would you run them at? 80 to 85 PSI, depending on road conditions. Race or comfort geometry? I'm going to say comfort geometry. Is comfort geometry all that comfortable? Is it because you're more of your weight's kind of on your sit bones? Well, the funny thing is what's being called comfort geometry really isn't that different from the fit that guys like Eddie Merckx were using, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. They sat higher. The difference was they bent their elbows. You know, you look at the average racer now, the bar is a foot lower than the saddle. And when they're in the drops, their arms are perfectly straight. And it's like, you know, you could get kind of the same upper body position if your bar was higher and you just bent your elbows. I think that, you know, the quote unquote comfort geometry or a comfort fit, you know, it allows you to move around on the bike more so that when you put your hands on the bar tops, you actually sit more upright. You know, you can open your chest up, you open up that hip angle so that it's a little easier to generate power as you're climbing. It gives you more choices. And ultimately, yeah, that's going to keep you more comfortable over a longer day. What is a good bike for a beginner? One that doesn't feel like you've spent too much money. 
What gearing do you want on your primary road bike? Compact in the front, 50, 34. In the rear, an 1128 cassette. If somebody was making a 1228, I'd use that instead. Why? I like having low gears for climbing. I mean, I live in a place that's, you know, very up and down. And so I really like making sure that I have, you know, low gears for getting up all the steep hills. And mostly the descents around here, the descents that I enjoy are pretty technical. And so I'm not worried about winding out a high gear. You know, I'm more about control. I don't need to pedal at 44 miles an hour. What is your favorite climb? Payuma. It's a road in Malibu. It starts over just off of Mulholland Highway and climbs up to the top of the ridge of the Santa Monica Mountains. And there are a couple spots along the way where you get the view of Santa Monica Bay, Las Virginis Canyon below you. It's a place of just stunning beauty. Uh, pretty special spot. After a ride, coffee or beer? <laughs> beer. What is the most underrated bike brand? Oh, Felt. <laughs> that one was easy. What's your favorite bike that you own? Probably my Danucci. It's a road bike with clearance for pretty big tires, so I can ride it on, you know, gravel roads and that sort of thing, but, you know, still ride it on the road. And it's gorgeous, built by one of the true masters of frame building and just exquisitely balanced. I get on that bike and it feels natural in a way that almost no other bike has ever felt. And this is a custom made bike for you. Yeah, custom. There's 100 hours in that bike. It's a work of art. You got to be worried when you order one of these that it's going to not work out so well. And you're going to have to rationalize it for the next 10 years. You know, I know what my needs are so well at this point that, you know, a millimeter here, a millimeter there isn't going to make any difference. I've been on so many bikes over the years. I've had so many different fits that actually I'm able to go in this with a high degree of faith that, you know, what we're going to do is going to work. And also several custom bikes have been built for me in the last few years. And so the Danucci followed on the heels of other successful custom bikes. And so it was easy to have the faith that this was going to work out. What's your N plus one if we limited it to, you know, things that you could buy at a local bike shop? If I was to add one bike, considering all the bikes that are in the garage right now. How many are there? Oh my gosh. Let's see. Okay. Danucci, Commotion, the Bishop, the Felt, the Scott, the Specialized, the one and only Brady. I have a cyclocross bike that I'm built with a friend and then the seven. Okay. So I've got nine bikes. Then there's like all the bikes for my kids and my wife. If I was to add one bike to that stable. So I've got, you know, three road bikes, you know, mountain bike tandem, a cross country mountain bike is kind of the one sort of whole, you know, a cross country race mountain bike. Just last night, the summer series of dirt crits finished in Howarth Park near me. Last weekend, I actually did a cross country race in Annadale State Park, which is just right there as well. And, you know, doing those events, it gives me a reason to have a bike like that, but I wouldn't ride it for any reason other than to do those races. You know, it's something that's not entirely necessary, but you know, if one fell out of the sky, I'd have a way to put it to use. I just bought a saddlebag, like a travel thing. It's like, it's amazing how much my mind is open, like my imagination, you know, cause it's like, well, now I can like put an extra kit and flip flops in there. So now I'm like looking at maps you know, I could go anywhere with this thing. <laughs> you know, the credit card tour is an incredibly underrated experience. You know, I type that into Google and there's just nothing that I can find that's compelling. And I'm thinking, this is the most magical idea that's come to me in five years. How aren't people writing about this? <laughs> I do imagine that. I imagine like my Bank of America ATM card, flip-flops, some basketball shorts and a t-shirt and just four days, just go. Yeah. I mean, I've got a friend who did the Pyrenees that way, you know, rode from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. Wow. You know, was doing laundry in his room. I think he had two kits and, you know, one pair of kind of proper street clothes and got those into a bag that, you know, was mounted to a seat post and, you know, yeah, got across the Pyrenees that way. You know, neat trick. I would love to have a chance to do something like that one of these days. You know, maybe I'll be able to do some touring with the tandem and our oldest son at one point. So that's a dream. Nice. What is the biggest mistake new riders make? Not investing in a good fit. I would have to say, because it seems like you're paying for a thing that's not that big a deal, 
you know, a lot of shops will charge upwards of a hundred dollars for fitting, but it can make such a big difference, not just in terms of comfort, but you can also end up being more efficient on the bike. So you'll be able to generate more power with less actual effort. And so it can really make a huge change in someone's riding. You know, I see so many new riders out there with just awful fits. And also one of the other things that can come from that is that by having a better fit, the bike itself will be balanced better and it'll handle better. And people end up feeling more confident as they go into turns. And nobody wants to do anything where they don't feel like they know what they're doing. And a lot of people won't admit when they don't feel super confident on descents or in turns. And, you know, that's one of those things where as that stuff starts to feel like zoom rather than woo, that qualitatively changes your experience. What is your favorite Grand Tour? Oh, still the Tour de France. And if you could take that dream vacation or that dream tour with your son, what would be the place that you'd want to do that? What I dream of right now would be like going up to Crescent City or, you know, the Mendocino Coast and then just riding back into Santa Rosa. You know, my current ambitions are pretty low key. Well, let's say this then. Let me reframe it a little bit. Let's exchange your son with a experienced rider from another planet or something, right? They're fit. You have unlimited budget to show this person the ride of their life. Where would you take them? Okay. So say like a month to take somebody around. I'd start in Girona. I'd ride through the Pyrenees. I'd ride across the south of France, you know, into Provence, up into the Alps a little bit, then down through the Italian Alps and into the Cinque Terre and finish in Tuscany. I'm taking notes. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a month of a lifetime, man. That's it. That sounds wonderful. If you didn't love this planet at the end of that, the problem would not be with the planet. <laughs> 